So Matthew chapter 28, this is the reason we celebrate this day and we, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 1 down to verse 8. It says this, After the Sabbath, that is Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. The most powerful story ever told, ever told throughout all of history is this story. The story with the most impact in all of history. There are many great tales and many great stories, but this one changes everything. Because although this has been debated for thousands of years, I would say this, if this is true, if what the Bible says is true, if Jesus actually died and rose again, you've got to decide what you're going to do with that. You've got to decide how you're going to respond to that. And so we're going to ask you, what's your response to that today? A few other things I noticed as we, as we tell this story. There's so many details there, but I noticed that the tomb is opened to great spectacle and power. Did you, did you catch that? There's an earthquake and there's an angel and brightness comes down out of heaven and sits on the, and, and rolls the stone away and sits on the stone and, and the, the guards who are there trying to make sure nobody steals the body shake and, and tremble and, and faint away. I can imagine just the, the overwhelmedness of this whole experience for them. And it dawned on me that, that the grave had to be opened, not so Jesus could get out, but because the guards were there guarding now an empty tomb. They just didn't know it yet. So the angel had to open the tomb so the guards could know, uh, he's not in there anymore. He's alive, right? And, and, and in the angel's ministry there, as we see the ladies come, is to invite them into the tomb and come and see, to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing that sticks out to me today as I read it. It talks about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and there are several women who come to the tomb this day. Um, And these are the two that are mentioned uh, in Matthew. Both of these ladies, Mary Magdalene and Mary, who's the the sister of Martha and Lazarus, these two are mentioned here. They are probably the closest friends Jesus has on this earth outside of his disciples. They know him well. They love him. As a matter of fact, they are getting up first thing in the morning on the, on the first day of the week to go and take care of his body. They have been witnesses to his death. They have been brokenhearted over his suffering. They have been crushed, devastated, destroyed because their dear friend, their Lord, the one that they followed, the one that had taught them about God, had been killed. And so on this morning, they woke up to go take care of his body. And they went to the tomb, and other Gospels tell us they went prepared to embalm, to wrap, to to care for his body, to show love to this one that they loved. But when they get there, they find out he isn't there. And that, that gets me. And here's why that gets me. They knew Jesus. They loved Jesus. They listened to Jesus. 
but they were wrong about Jesus. Did you see that? They didn't go that morning going, now remember, he said, three days he's going to rise again. Remember, he said three days. They didn't do that. They went sad. They went brokenhearted. And they went to the tomb to, to kind of deal with their grief. And when they got to the tomb, it says they were stunned. They were afraid because the tomb was empty. So they knew Jesus. They loved Jesus. They listened to Jesus. But they were wrong about what he was going to do. How about that? Maybe you think because you're, you're not mad at Jesus, you don't hate him, you kind of like him, or you come to church, or you listen to things about him, you even read his word, that you're good. But what if you're wrong about Jesus? What if he's more than you ever thought he was? What if he's not just some guy who's a good guy, who's got good truth and really knows God? What if he's God himself? What about that? What if he wants to do something in you that that you've never even considered? And so it occurs to me, every single one of us has a view of Jesus Christ. Every one of us has an approach to God. Some people think he doesn't exist. Other people love him. Many people keep him at a distance. Some fear him. Some are stuck trying to figure out why he doesn't fix everything. But what if your view of God is mistaken? What if you would be surprised, just like these women were surprised at the tomb that day? Maybe you're settled in the idea that God is just a disinterested if he exists. He's just a disinterested deity. He, he cares little for us. He's not involved. Maybe you've acted like God is someone who's a genie who responds to prayers and, and the magic rubbing of the lamp is, is the right prayer to say and to say it enough times and then he'll do what I want him to do. Maybe you had some mistaken ideas about God. Maybe some of those ideas have created a struggle, even disappointment and despair in you because you thought God, you thought you knew God and because you love God, you thought he would work something out in a particular way and it hasn't worked out that way. And you're right up against the fact that what you thought you knew about God, maybe something is something else. Maybe God is surprising you. We can all be surprised, even if we love Jesus. And so maybe God isn't who you think he is. Maybe he's not like what you think he's like. Maybe you've been dealing with, way, dealing with him in a way that you need to stop dealing with him. And so let me save you some time. I'm going to look at some stories in Joshua about some of the ways people approach God Almighty and how those approaches worked out. So I'm going to show you. They say that wise people learn from the experiences of others. I'm going to save you some time. If you're trying any of these approaches, we're going to show you how they work out and you can decide if you like that outcome or not. None of these people actually liked this outcome, all right? So first, we're going to go back to the book of Joshua, and we're going to look at the story of the people of God coming into the promised land. The Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. They were on a journey up to the place that God had promised them. And so on this journey, they, they went through a lot of things, and now they're ready to go in and take the promised land. The, the land that, that God is going to give them is full of people who do not worship the true and living God. They worship someone else. They worship or they worship no one. And so they're going to go march into this land. And the first thing I want you to see in Joshua 5 is is this. All of these people, although none of them believed in God or followed the true and living God, all of them knew about the God of Israel. And that's why I want to start in Joshua 5.1. Here's what it says. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast 
heard how God had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Maybe you've you've lost that in, in the storytelling and you just wonder why God is so mean and he sends the Israelites to kill everybody in the whole land. How could God be like that? Well, I want you to notice this is the precursor to all of that. It says every single king in that land, meaning and their kingdom, had heard about what God had done for those who followed him and trusted him. And by hearing what God had done for them, they had an understanding of God and they had to decide how they were going to respond to this God. God's work was evident to all long before they fell to the swords of Israel. And they all had a choice to make. They all had to do something with this. Well, they're the people who are coming marching into our land and they say they're going to take over our land and their God dries up the Jordan River for them so they can all cross over. What are we going to do about that? That's a pretty powerful God, wouldn't you say? What are we going to do about that God? Because we don't have the option of just not doing anything. God is bringing them to us. That power is headed towards us in his people. He's on his way. How will we respond to this God? It's because God had done the unimaginable, the overwhelming. Would they fall on their face? Would they give themselves to this God? Would they follow this God? Would they humble themselves? Or would they try something else? And so the first city they come to is a city called Jericho. And this city had a great wall. As a matter of fact, on Wednesday night, we're going to see a depiction of this wall. Actually, not this one, the next one. A depiction of the wall of Jericho, which is uh, they found, archaeologists have found it. It's a, a huge, insurmountable wall. And these people in Jericho, they know enough about God to know that God is someone to fear, that God is powerful, and that God shows his power in the lives of his people. But the people of Jericho don't want God in their lives. And so what they do is they lock the city up tight. Go one more chapter over, Joshua chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So they heard about how powerful God is and the Israelites are coming their way. And so their solution is this. Let's keep God out. We'll put up this wall, we'll lock the gates, we'll make sure the gates are never opened, and that means, what did they think that meant? He can't get in. We've kept God out. And they looked at their walls, and they thought about how many times those walls had protected them, how many times it had stopped a battle before it even started, because no one can scale those walls. So they trusted in their wall. They had a choice to make. Will we trust in the living God or will we trust in the wall? Will we let God in or will we keep him out? And so they built these walls to keep him out. I wonder maybe if you've done that with God. Maybe you've put up walls trying to keep God out of your business. Trying to keep him out of your life. I mean, it's fine and all that he created the world. It's fine and all that he you know, does all his God stuff. But that shouldn't affect me at all. Stay out. And you put up walls trying to keep him out of your life. You don't trust him. Or maybe you just don't want his way. You want your way. So you've decided to hide from him behind your walls. 
Maybe you've noticed how he's worked in the lives of others, but maybe it never occurred to you that the best choice you could make is to let him in and let him work in you. And so you keep him out. Maybe even as a believer, you've decided that there are some areas of your life that are off limits to God. And every time the Lord comes to you and says, we need to work on this, you go, shh, go away. I don't want to talk to you. That's not your business, God. Stay out of that. That's mine. I don't want you to deal with that. I'll take care of what I want to do there. So we put up walls before God. We try to keep him out. How do we do that? How do we keep up walls? I think you can think of lots of ideas. You just... You just avoid conversations about God. You avoid people who follow God. You steer clear of Christian stuff. You steer clear of anybody who would tell you something you don't want to hear. Formally or informally, right? And you just, you make excuses about why you have to stay where you are. Someone comes and says, you need to change. And you say, well, I can't. There's nothing I can do. It's a wall that you've put up. And you said, God, stay out. I've got my plan, I've got my agenda, I know the way I want to go with this, and that's the way I'm going to go. A lot of times when we're young, we're told that this is your time to have fun, this is your time to just be crazy and wild and enjoy life. And that excuse inside of your head has been your excuse to keep God out from affecting your life right now. And someday, maybe later on, maybe I'll let him in then, but not now. And you put up a wall. Well, let's see how the walls work out. All right, go down with me to verse 20. Chapter 6. Here's what it says. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. How'd the walls work out? See, God is greater than your walls. God is greater than the barriers you've put up to try to make sure he doesn't get in. What I will say for you is this. If you're trying to deal with God, if you're trying to react with God by keeping him out, he will get in. But if you don't let him in, it won't be good for you. It wasn't good for Jericho. Do you know what they did as they went into Jericho? They killed everyone and they burned the city. So when God breaks down your wall because you've tried to keep him out and you've put your trust in your wall, it's not going to be good for you when he gets in. The only good response is to let him in right now. You can't keep God out. And if you don't let him in now, he'll come in later, but it will be for your destruction instead of your deliverance. So the first city falls. Second city, the city known as Ai. These guys heard about Jericho. They heard about the walls falling down. So they weren't just going to stay in their city. They were going to try a different tactic. You know, you would think that the, the city of Jericho falling, everybody around the whole place would have just fallen on their face before God. But don't we tend to discount what happens to other people? Well, that's them. I'm different, right? That's good for them, but I'm different than them. So that's what the people of AI do. They say, well, we're going to do something else. And we're going to take a different tack with God. And maybe you've taken this tack with God. These folks are going to fight against God. As foolish as that sounds, that's what they're going to do. So the people of Israel go against Ai, and in the first attack, they, the, the people of God fail miserably, but it's because they have business to take care of with God. But the people of Ai take it as a sign that you can fight God off. You can overcome the power of God. When Joshua and the Israelites come back for the second battle, the people of Ai believe that they can overcome God's work, that they can fight against God himself. Let's see how that worked out. Chapter 8 of Joshua. 
uh, verses 18 to 20. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Joshua, hold out toward Ai, the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. And as soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and set, quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up to the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing toward the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. And so what you find here is this. When the Israelites came back for the second time, to defeat Ai, under the power of God and in the power of God, the people of Ai thought, we've got them. We're just going to tear these people up. And so they come rushing out of their city to fight the children of Israel. And the children of Israel, according to the battle plan, turn around and run. But what they don't know is that there's an ambush waiting. And as soon as all the men of the city run out and they chase the Israelites, this ambush comes flying into the city and, and destroys the city. The people who, who ran out, all the men of the army ran out, turn around and look back and they realize we've been had. And then they turn and look the other direction and here's an army standing in front of them ready to fight. You might think that you can fight God off. You might think that you can wrestle with God and win. You might think that that somehow your plan is going to supersede God's plan, that you can make your plan work out. I will tell you, it was the self-assurance of the people of Ai that brought their destruction. They were sure that they could do what they wanted to, that they didn't have to submit themselves to God. They were sure of it. They were so sure of it that they ran out of the city, leaving their wives and their children behind in the city, and they ran out to face an army, and they were destroyed. Let me just fast forward to the end of the story. Anytime you fight against God, God wins. He may let you wrestle for a while, But ultimately, fighting against God by force of will will only do one thing. It will wreck you. Maybe you think, well, I don't like God's plan. I don't think God's plan is fair. I don't think, you know, this whole salvation through Jesus thing. Why can't I just believe whatever I want to believe? It doesn't matter if you think it's fair or not. You're not going to win this wrestling match. See, he's God. You're not. He wins. You don't. That's how it is. So you could have that philosophical argument all you want. You might not like how your life is unfolding. You might be arguing with God and trying to fight against God because you don't want what God is doing in your life. You fought against his work as he tries to change stuff from you. He tries to take stuff away that you shouldn't be doing or he tries to prompt you to do stuff you should be doing. You, You don't like that my plan is not working out. And it just seems like God is thwarting all the things that I do. Today, I want to invite you to stop fighting. To surrender to God. Because you can't win. And because you'll only wind up smashing yourself to pieces. So, we had two people, two cities, two different responses. One said, we'll keep God out. That didn't work. The next one said, we'll fight against God. That didn't work. So, there's another group. uh, And we find them in Joshua 9. It's a group called the Gibeonites. There are some other locals and they've, they've heard and they've witnessed and they realize you can't keep God out and you can't fight against him. So they're going to do what many, many people, I think this is probably the biggest tripping point for Christians that there is, as well as people just who, who are Godward but maybe have, don't have a relationship with God yet. They're going to make a deal with God. God, let's make a deal. I'll tell you what. 
if you do this, I'll do this. They're going to make a deal with God. So pick up with me at verse 3 down to verse 6 of chapter 9. It says this, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. So they are next-door neighbors. But they decide what they're going to do is they're going to come ask Israel to make a peace treaty with them, but they're going to lie about where they're from. And they're going to make it look like they're from far, far away. Because you know how you can make a deal with God, right? You know how you can work it out. You know how God's fooled by our disingenuousness, right? You know how God is just so gullible like that. These folks knew God was too powerful to ignore and that they had no shot at stopping him. So what they did instead is they said, well, let's just, let's make a deal. Let's, let's lie. Let's try to trick God. Don't we offer God deals all the time? Try to make a bargain with him as though we have something to offer God in a bargain. Now, God, I know you really want this, so I'm going to give this to you, but only if you give me the thing that I want, right? We're going to make a deal. God doesn't work in deals like that because God's already made the deal. He knows the deal. He is the deal, And what's funny is we think that God can be manipulated by these deals into working our plan. God cares about you too much to let you take his power and use it for your plan. Because your plan, not going to work. So God says, it's going to have to be my plan or nothing. And so we can't make this deal with God. Sometimes, and I've done this too, so you... If we're honest, we've done this. When you make a deal with God, you're in one of those dark, dark moments and you're like, God, please just do this, just do this. And then you add this little thing, this sweetener to the prayer so that God will actually do it. God, if you will just do what I want you to do, whatever it is, then I promise I will do something I think matters to you, God, right? Have you ever made that deal? Let's ask this. Have you ever known someone who made that deal? Yeah, of course. And that someone is you, right? How often has that deal, when God comes through, has that deal lasted? Maybe a day or a second? Like a New Year's resolution, it was was made with good intention, but then we just kind of lied to ourselves about, I will always, I promise you, God, if you just heal this person, I'll go to church every Sunday. God's like, oh, okay, seriously, you'll go to church every Sunday? Okay, good. (laughs) Then I'll heal them. You know what I mean? Like, we are so dumb in our interaction with God. Like, we think that God wants to make a deal with us. Here's the deal. God says, listen, you've got nothing for me but a mess. And I want your mess because I can heal it. I can redeem it. I can restore you. You are broken. You are shattered. You are powerless. But I will pour resurrection power into your life if you will come and give me your life. But the Gibeonites don't do that. They come and they say, please make a treaty with us. Sure enough, the the Israelites make a treaty with them. And so I'm sure that the Gibeonites felt like, well, we got one over on God. But let's see if they actually got what they wanted. What do you think they wanted when they came and made this treaty? Think they wanted to live, right? They wanted to survive. They wanted probably to keep their possessions. They wanted to live at peace with Israel. That's probably what they wanted, right? They wanted to have a good life for them and their children. Let's see what happened. 
Verse 26. So Joshua saved them, that is the Gibeonites, from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. Fancy way of saying Joshua made them slaves. Now, then their deal, do you think their deal was? I, I just hope that we get to be slaves. They come to make a deal with God. They think that they've got one over on God. And the reality is they're the ones who suffer. And it talks about that's what they are to this day, meaning not just that generation, but their children were slaves to Israel and their children's children's were slaves to Israel. Is that the kind of legacy you think they wanted to pass on? Making a deal with God doesn't really work. And so maybe you've been struggling with this stuff. Maybe you've been trying to keep God out of your life. Let me tell you right now, you won't be able to keep him out of your life because one day he'll be your judge. He's going to judge all of us one day. Doesn't, you don't get a vote in whether he's your judge or not. See, he made everything, so he's the judge. That's how it is. You won't be able to keep him out of your life, but you, will, you are able to invite him in. Maybe you've been trying to fight God off. You think that if you just have you know, a little bit better strategy or or your will is just strong enough, if you can just hold out long enough, if you can just push hard enough, that eventually everything's going to go your way and your plan is going to unfold. I can fast forward to the end. You don't win. God wins. Because God is right. And God's plan is the plan that will unfold. Maybe today you've been trying to make a deal with God. There's no deal to be made. God offers you grace, not barter. He offers you mercy and forgiveness, not, you know, can we make an exchange here? God comes to give you life for free. The question is, how will you respond to this God? This God who worked in the children of Israel, this God who raised Jesus from the dead, how will you respond Will you try to keep him out? Will you try to fight him? Will you try to make a deal with him? And believers, I'm talking to you too. You do the same thing. You're a child of God. Well, I don't have to listen to this. Baloney. When was the last time that you were completely surrendered to God? No matter what, whatever you say, God, that's what I want. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to walk by faith. It was the last time it was like that. So I want to invite you to respond the way these people should have responded. There's only one response to an almighty, true, and living God. Surrender. To give yourself to Him. And what you'll find is this. That word surrender sounds so much like a loss. And, and there's irony in that. But listen. What you lose is nothing compared to what He gives. You will gain more than you could ever lose in surrender to Him. By, by inviting God in, instead of shutting Him out, you'll find that God knows exactly what to do, and you'll be so glad that He did what you never thought He should. Anyone who thinks that your best bet is making a deal with God, listen, the, the idea of a relationship with God is founded on one concept, faith. And faith is simply trusting Him. Do you trust God to do what is good 
for you, better than you can imagine, beyond what you could think up, that God will do what is right for you.